tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Filipino community is pulling together to help support those who have lost so much during the wildfires. This Saturday, the Filipino Chamber of Commerce hosts a resource fair to bring uh, important information to those who have lost their loved ones, residences, or businesses. It will also provide comfort in a cultural sense. The concept is to hold hands through this difficult time to bring aloha Kit Zuleta Furukawa is with the Maui Chamber and is chairing the event. She lays out what's in store. We have an upcoming fair. It's called Hawakamai Filipino Resource Fair. Hawakamai literally means to hold hands. So it's a term to, that means hand in hand, especially in time of uh, disaster recovery. You know, as we know, most of the deadlines are coming soon and some have already passed. So our goal is to make sure this sector in the community receives the attention that they need, uh, namely the Filipino community. You know, the fair is not really an original idea. Man- many other sectors uh, have done it already. As we know, there are many cultural nuances in the Maui community, and that large portion, more than 50% of those affected by the fires, are our Filipino families. Uh, the fair will provide in the usual federal, state, county services already existing at the, the disaster center, um, but we aim to supplement it with more booths and bring members of the Filipino community to help provide translation services and just familiar faces to remind them um, that we are here for the long haul. You know, we aim to empower them to advocate for their needs as well. We have so many families whose roots run deep there, uh, you know, from to plantation days. And we have also new transplants, some new immigrants. Yeah, what's good is we have the Philippine Consulate of Honolulu is also joining us at this fair for those who need uh, passport replacements as well, the national. So that will be great. So really just holding everybody's hand, working through some of maybe, like you said, cultural nuances, maybe the, the right. messages will sink in when you have a familiar face explaining why it's so important to do a DNA swab. Correct. Like things like that. In addition to, you know, potential financial and material things that they will receive, um, we want to support their um, their healing journey as well, you know, as you know. Um, we know our families kind of heal differently. They, some may like to get back to gardening. We're bringing some keiki plants to give away, keiki orchids. And we're also going to give away some Filipino brands of canned goods. Some want to cook their Filipino meals at home. We have Aloha Harvest bringing in some vegetables as well. So we want to also heal that way, you know, <laughs> heal the soul. Uh, we're going to have a keiki play area. We're going to have Filipino um, children's books to give away as well. Um, and just talk, talk story tables for folks to to consult, to inquire, to vent, you know, to share stories. Because, you know, having that opportunity to do so would be would be great. You know, it's really about drawing aloha from the community so we can kind of inspire hope. It's quite hard to find silver linings at this time, but that's kind of our message just to be there and remind them that they're not forgotten. We want to kind of promote resilience and find some balance between swift action and sensitivity also at this time. A sorrow shared is a sorrow halved, you know, so if you can share... Mm -hmm. And just be there when someone's going through, uh, you know, a tough time uh, that you can give them some hope. And it makes this whole terrible situation maybe more bearable. Right, right. And as we know, our families are all over the islands now. Some are in hotels. So it's uh, we're everywhere. All the um, affected families are everywhere. So we want to hold an event just to get everyone on the same place, just to address everyone at the same time and just provide an opportunity for that. So yeah, that's what we have. It's next Saturday, uh, September 23rd. And the time? The time is 9 to 3, just for the fair, although the resource tables are there with the regular hours and Philippine Consulate doing their outreach will be there the day before, September 22, 23, and 24. So they will be there for the, for three days. And what have you heard of the family and friends that you've talked to, you know, who have been affected by this tragedy? You know, for us, we have been collecting information since day one. We know 
when once we saw the impact the pictures we know it's going to be for the long haul and we want to capture some information right away most of the families that have reached out to us um, number one is still housing permanent housing and that will take some collaborative effort with our government officials etc but number two is really financial they still have bills they need to pay you know they still have expenses they still need to eat we have very wonderful hubs around the county that have been providing aid but financial assistance is still number two and we want to address that really quickly we have some grant applications uh, going on we are fundraising but if you know if all goes well if we do get approved we want to distribute money at the fair so we're really crossing our fingers for that and then just as far as the business sector you know because we were hearing that there were families that had maybe multiple businesses you know that were burned it's really going to be tough trying to get back on their feet oh absolutely for the business sector some families are considering moving some families haven't really entertained the idea yet even I think at this time, a month after the disaster, it's still mostly life-sustaining, life-preserving kind of efforts, and their mindset isn't there yet, although they're thinking about it. We have some business owners who have, like in the service industry, who are having clients in October, November, and they don't have equipment to perform their businesses. We have things like that that we're trying to address as well. The chamber eventually we're looking at possibly doing programs such as micro grants you know helping out startup uh, initiatives as well Um, but we are looking that in steps two or three or four even so we feel we're still in early stages right now alfredo evangelista uh, told us uh, that um, uh, there was uh, one woman he knew who i think had lost her husband and she was mm-hmm. about to sell her house and move back to the Philippines to be with family, but now she has no home uh, to sell. And yeah, it just makes it just more difficult, I think, during this time. Oh, absolutely. We have our our manangs and manangs um, that are, are elderly. You know, they have stayed in their homes, some of them living by themselves, and some of them are struggling. So what will they do now? They don't have the will to work again, to rebuild again, and what's going to happen to them. So a lot of that, a lot of uncertainties. Yeah, and that's very stressful. So you want to be able to support them and that hope, and hope that they stay strong because right. it is going to be a very long recovery. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, just even uh, presence at this time, we're, we're not able to help them rebuild their homes. Um, but we want to at least remind them that, you know, the rest of the Filipino community stands behind them and will support them for the long haul. Do you have hard numbers yet on, on, on those who have lost their lives or who are still You know, we're, uh, we're working with the Philippine consulate on this. You know, they are also cross-checking their records on some of the names that have been reported by the county or the casualties. And so we don't have those numbers yet. Although, like you mentioned earlier, just guessing from their last names and guessing from who they know, you know, we can we can assume that these folks are Filipinos. Uh, so yeah, we can just base it on that. But no hard numbers yet as of now. There are six, eight families living in homes right now with their relatives. Most of them are in hotels. Those who have uh, sought for uh, temporary housing. Um, yeah, and. Some have a move to Oahu as well on neighbor islands. So they're everywhere. So they're all over the place right now. We do know the temporary housing is temporary. So where they're going to stay after that is a big question that we want to we want to raise as well. Yeah, so much uncertainty ahead, but at least the community there is pulling together to hold their hand. Right. 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 Yes. The least we can do. Yeah. Okay. A- anything else that you want to underscore about this event? Sure. Um, yeah, maybe just a call for call for um, call for help. If there are organizations, agencies that are offering free services um, 
education, the goods, or anything that will benefit the families, please plan to join us. You know, MauiFilipinoChamber.com is our website. There's a sign-up link there. We we want to give aloha at this event. We want to give aloha, not business cards. Mm. So oh. We want to, yeah. Uh, while I think of it, I just uh, uh, was talking to someone. There was a local company here, uh, Oceanit, and they're the mm-hmm. ones that got the approval on the COVID tests, and they were planning uh, to see if they could send over some COVID tests over. Uh, but maybe yeah. I'll let them know about your event, so if they can uh, make Absolutely. some of those available, to the, especially with those families that are, you know, doubled up, tripled up in, in, in right. close quarters, right. that maybe that might be helpful. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Anything, any folks that are finding uh, a, an opportunity to distribute goods, you know, we're going to gather the Filipino community at this event. So this is an opportunity to really reach out to that sector. We are expecting maybe two thousand or more families that are coming. Oh wow! Um, okay. So yeah, we're we're really gearing up for it. So if you have aid and support you're willing to give, yeah, please join us. Well, Kit, thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh, good luck with the event. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for helping us spread the word. Thank you so much. That was Kit Zuela uh, Furukawa of the Filipino Chamber of Commerce. She's behind the resource fair uh, that will be held this Saturday, geared to help the Filipino community. But the general public is welcome. The Filipino Council General's Office, uh, the staff will be there to help with vital documents. Interpreters will be on hand, as well as other federal, state, and county agencies to assist families with their needs. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha United Way, partnering with local workplaces to engage teams motivated to help impact the community. More about its workplace campaign at auw.org. Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, host of The Body Show. Each week we do our best to provide you with up-to-date medical information from our local experts that might help you or someone you love know more about the world of medicine. Join us today for our latest episode at 6.30 right here on The Body Show. Support for HPR comes from Ho Community Park on Kauai, presenting Bill Kreutzman's Grateful Mantra, performing music from the Grateful Dead songbook this Friday and Saturday. Tickets at aninaho.org. tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're remembering a woman who was for decades Hawaii's queen of jazz. She was born in Honolulu of Okinawan ancestry and performed regularly from the mid-50s until her death in 1984. She started out in 1955 uh, as an MC at the Oasis nightclub in Honolulu, which imported entertainers from Japan and soon expanded to the military circuit as a singer. Her accompanist was pianist and arranger Paul Conrad. Another band leader, Martin Denny, helped her get her first recording contract, an album with Conrad's arrangements of jazz standards like Autumn Leaves, along with a few Hapahali numbers and even a Japanese folk song. That album was 1958's Exotic Dreams, designed to capitalize on the exotica jazz trend that was taking off at the time, a musical style rooted in the fantasy ideas of Asia and the Pacific. 
She continued to be a popular entertainer and a Waikiki fixture until her passing at the young age of 49. Do you know the name of the songbird? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. It's called Compassionate Housing. An architect, a neuroscientist, and a firefighter are working to provide a design for rebuilding in Lahaina. The hope is that it'll help heal and deal with the trauma of the wildfires and to provide a safe space in the event of another fire disaster. Designing with intention, a prescription for a built environment thanks to the Brain Health Applied Research Institute, or BIHARI for short. Architect Mari Kim and co-founder Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa are using their nonprofit to offer an innovative option for permanent housing in Maui. Here's Kim. We call it compassionate housing. So you know the way that cause, Dr. Nakagawa says it is, cause says, you know during COVID, compassionate care became very important because patients who were coming to the hospital were not only coming for medical care, they were actually coming for life support, mental support. They were actually coming to receive care in a compassionate way. and. Even before everything that happened in Lahaina, Kaz and I talked about compassionate housing. Is there a way to house some of the most vulnerable population in our community in a way where architects can use that same theory of compassionate care? We can create a housing environment specifically based on the neuroscience of recovery whether it's from trauma, whether it's from a health situation. And so we started down the road of creating compassionate housing, and then the Lahaina fire happened. And we ended up partnering with Bradley Chang, who is a career-long firefighter. And a neurologist, an architect, and a firefighter decided to put our brains together and come up with a different type of housing that allows somebody to enter the, the very long road to recovery from a, a very traumatic situation, such as the tragedy of the fire, in an environment that is specifically designed to allow your brain to recover. So we're, we're not just talking about people going into boxes. I'm a Maui girl, I grew up in Kihei. I have a lot of friends and family. We have friends and family who lost their homes. And one of them said it best. She, she actually said, please don't put us in boxes. Allow us to maintain our dignity and don't tell us how to live. So I keep hearing about all these solutions. Let's build concrete houses. Let's make them two hour fire rated. I think, who wants to live in a concrete box? That's not what we know, it's not in our DNA. So we actually created a specific design based on a plantation house that allows you to shelter in place if you can't run from the fire. By all means, if you can run, please run. <laughs> if you can't run, we have designed a solution that allows you to shelter in place in what we call a safe room, for the lack of a better term. And hopefully the idea is that it will keep you alive for a heck of a lot longer than if that safe room wasn't there. And it's not so much that we believe that you will be in a dangerous situation again. You, in order for your mental recovery to really begin its journey, one of the main priorities to that rehabilitation is to feel safe. 
And this is not only in housing, this is in life in general. Without that sense of safety, the path to recovery is very long and very hard. It's long and hard anyway. So in many ways, the safe room is, is a trigger to first know that in that situation, again, you have an alternative. It offers you that sense of safety that forms a foundation first. If you go to sleep every night being scared, I actually was told a story by one of the hotels where the hotel that took in the residents who lost their homes and lost loved ones, most of the residents slept in the car park. They would not sleep in the hotel rooms. And why? Because the hotel rooms faced the ocean and the car park faced the mountain. So if a fire broke out again, they would see it. I mean, that sense of insecurity and sense of the loss of safety is debilitating. So if we can design a different type of housing model where first foundation is a sense of safety that goes a long way into the path of to recovery. You have created this design around the whole plantation yes. village or plantation home? Yes, yes, because it is part of the DNA of who we are. I actually grew up on a nursery. I grew up on a farm, you know, up from the Suda store in Kihei. You know, we, we have to help people re-engage with the community and the life that they know, understand, and want to return to. We can't just transplant these concrete boxes. And, and I'm not talking about the emergency housing. We're talking about the long-term housing to rebuild on people's own properties. You know, you've come up with this design. What's the next step? So can I tell you just a little bit about the design? Mm-hmm. We, we actually talked to a lot of firefighters, and we, I, I actually watched the interviews with firefighters. And, you know, as an architect, you feel this huge sense of responsibility. So everything failed, right? Electricity fails, you know, everything. You know, fire hoses melted, fire trucks melted, everything. And I remember the captain saying they had no choice and the last resort for a firefighter is to shelter in place. And once I heard him say that, it triggered this thought, okay, could they have sheltered in place in a different way? So we actually designed a house that only relies on gravity to keep a family or a person alive because gravity is the only thing that's not going to fail in this acute fire situation. There is a safe room sitting in the middle of the house. It's in a courtyard and the top of the room actually is a water tank and the water, gravity actually drives the water down over the walls of the room to collect in a pond under the room The room is sitting on feet, so it's not touching the ground, so the water washes under the room as well. And the physics behind it is that that water touching that very hot concrete surface in the fire hopefully will create that, it's like a vapor, it's a bubble of vapor that is what keeps the heat off the room. So we have a lot more to study. We have Bradley is amazing in his knowledge. He's a career firefighter. He's actually my best friend's older brother as well, somebody I trust deeply. And also, we cannot afford to build these concrete bunker houses. Number one, nobody wants to live in them. But they cost so much money. Build a plantation house. In the worst case scenario, the house may burn again, but the family will hopefully stay safe. Spend the money in one specific piece of the house that becomes that safe room and allow it to work if everything else electronic, you know, mechanically fails around you. You know, gravity's never gonna fail. The other thing is that if you think about water and what water means to this sort of dry land coastal area, by allowing water to return to the home to keep the family safe in this sort of shelter, this safe room, and then allowing the water to drain out the bottom of the house and return to the land. We hope that we become a part of the water cycle and we ask the water to help us and then we allow it to go back to the land and make its journey back to the ocean. You know, we are refilling water back to this site as well. And hopefully over time we can use rainwater catchment 
to fill the tank above the safe room so that the water that started as rain comes and it, it occupies the house. It keeps the family safe and it drains out and it returns back to the garden and back to the, to the land. And it's just a more sustainable and liable way to think about how, you know, we live in balance. You know, and I, I think that, man, if, if this whole site could become a lo'i again, think about the amount of remediation that could happen naturally. So it just sounds like out of this terrible situation, we've got some minds coming together to try and be innovative and test something that, that isn't out there no, right now. Not. Yeah, you, you know, that's a brilliant way to put it. It took a diversity of experts in, in medicine, in, in fire, you know, in built environments to say, you know, how could the outcome have been different? That was architect Mari Kim, who, along with Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa and their nonprofit, the Brain Health Applied Research Institute, are offering a design for healing as an option for rebuilding Lahaina. Kim is originally from Maui and a partner with G70 and CEO of the ION Group, and Nakagawa is chief of neuroscience at Queen's Medical Center. The two met after Kim says Dr. Nakagawa saved her father's life from a brain injury. She also became intrigued using the built environment as part of the healing process after an aunt moved from an institutional setting to a setting in a Buddhist monastery and made cognitive progress, all part of a desire to translate compassionate care into compassionate housing. Kim has applied for a trademark through the U.S. Patent Office and plans to fire test the concept. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at WaikoloaBeachResort.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Margaret Wrinkle, author of The Comfort of Crows. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the natural world that exists in our own backyards. Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Blue Note Hawaii, located in the outrigger Waikiki, presenting musician and comedian Morgan Jay, performing material from his album, I Hope My Ex Doesn't See This, this Wednesday. Tickets at bluenotehawaii.com. In our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat takes a closer look at a proposed water rate hike. The Honolulu Board of Water Supply is proposing a double-digit increase. Reporter Ben Angrone joins us today. Hi, Ben. Hi, Catherine. Hope you had a great weekend. I did, but boy, this hike, it's going to hit us in the pocketbook. I know, I know. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's definitely something where if you look at the year-by-year increases, it's like 10%. Uh, it would be this January 1st and then 10% on July 1st, also of 2024, and then 9% and then 8.5%, 8% the next year, and then another 8%. Uh, anyway, the whole point of that is that it adds up, if you do the math, to over the span of five years, about a 50% increase in water bills for most customers. And so, it, yes, that is, it is a bit of a whoa. Yeah, and I know that the rate hike, uh, they were talking about, they've been talking about this because they say we have a, we have aging uh, an aging infrastructure and we have uh, water main breaks just about every single day. And some of them are big pipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get those emails where uh, they talk about different water things that they're trying to fix and everything. So, yeah, this is something where I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that they point to for why they want to raise the water prices. Uh, and just as a, a reminder to everybody of um, how the funding works for Board of Water Supply. So unlike all of the other or a lot of the other 
city departments, which get their funding from the city's budget and from taxes and stuff. The Board of Water Supply is semi-autonomous, and so the way that that works funding-wise is all of its revenue comes from customer charges. And so uh, that's why they're leaning pretty hard on this, and that's why it's, I mean, it's pretty frustrating, I think, a lot of people would find, especially because cost of living is already so high on this island in this state. And so this going up would add to that. But anyway, yes, like you mentioned, aging infrastructure is something that they already have been thinking about. It's something that uh, I'm sure they've been thinking about for years and decades. This is just something where a quote that I actually did not include from somebody in here is, you know, if you paint the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, then congratulations. Now, as soon as you finish, you got to start painting it again from the beginning because things like this need maintenance all the time. And so that's just one factor uh, of why the board wanted to raise their prices. And then the other factors are things that are pretty specific to our current time period. You know, Red Hill, the disaster there with uh, fuel leaking into the water supply means that uh, a few of the wells, I think, uh, are offline now. And so the Board of Water Supply, one, has to drill new monitoring wells so they can better test uh, the composition of water. And they have to drill new exploratory wells to look for new sources of water. That's extra expense. Uh, and then in addition, also you have inflation, uh, you have electricity prices going up, you have here was an interesting one actually that they mentioned. Uh, so because of the way the water rates are structured where residents pay less than businesses do, when the pandemic hit and everybody had to shift away from businesses and live at home more, that meant that they were losing out on this higher business rates. And so that is a huge part of this as well. And I know that the schedule generally accounts of uh you know, for the fact that if you are a big water hog and you use more water, the chances are you're going to pay more uh, as kind of an incentive for the folks who are mindful and can keep their uh, water use down that you will pay less. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And so within the single family home kind of category of users, there are different tiers of water usage. So the first 2,000 gallons per month that people use that's, uh, I think, where's the word? It's something like that's essential usage. And so those, those first 2,000 gallons are charged at a lower rate. There are different tiers going up to, I think, 35,000 gallons and up, I think, or something like that is the top tier. And once you get to that point, then you're paying a lot more per 1,000 gallons of water. And so like you mentioned, as a way to sort of incentivize conserving water, uh, the people who use the most water, not only are they already paying the most, but the rate of increase will go up the highest for them if this passes. And the people who, or I guess the tier of usage for single family home users at that first sort of tier of zero to 2,000 gallons of water, that rate is going up at a smaller rate than the top rate is. Yeah, well, we will be hearing more about this, but uh, like you said, the proposed rates are for the beginning of the year, you know, one in January and then one in July, but that's 10% and 10%. So that's a, a, yep. a big impact on our uh, on our pocketbook. But thank you so much, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much, Catherine. That was reporter Ben Angeron with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. A citizen scientist in Japan captures video evidence of a huge explosion in the sky the moment that an asteroid makes impact. We'll have the details in your Monday Stargazer. It's HPR, and I'm Dave Lawrence with Stargazer, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet, and also some things we might be able to spot in our dark skies. As usual, we're thrilled to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through our journey. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What you got this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, Stargazers, look out for Jupiter in the east around 9 p.m., 
Saturn will already be visible after sunset, and you can see that in the southwestern portion of the sky. The moon this week will be passing through its first quarter phase, and so sky brightness will still be great for spotting those faint objects in the heavens. Now, Chris has one of those really inspiring sort of stories, because part of the fun of Stargazer is inspiring people to take a look up and try and spot stuff in the sky. And when the uh, Starlink objects aren't getting in the way, one of the things that apparently an amateur astronomer in the Asia-Pacific was able to spot made its way onto the radar of Mr. Phillips. Indeed, yes, an amateur astronomer in Japan has captured what appears to be a colossal explosion in the upper atmosphere of the planet Jupiter. The extraordinary video, captured using off-the-shelf equipment, shows the brilliant flash from what is believed to have been an impact from an asteroid. Since the initial report, there have been six more witnesses who have come forward to claim they have also observed the impact. And to give a little context, this kind of thing isn't as rare as, as it sounds, huh? Yeah, they're actually quite frequent, but catching them is always a challenge because monitoring a large planet like Jupiter 24-7 is hard, especially for professional astronomers whose time on large telescopes is limited. However, impacts like these are of incredible scientific value because when large telescopes are able to follow up, we can gain valuable insights into the evolution of the solar system by studying the impact and its aftermath. And you point out something pretty important because getting access to do stuff on the telescopes is not like walking into the 7-Eleven and grabbing a Slurpee. It's a pretty complicated process. It just shows you how much power there is for the average person listening. Yeah, exactly. Amateur astronomers are very important. They're the closest thing we have to a truly global, real-time monitoring system of the whole sky, especially when it comes to the planets. Planets are easily within the reach of store-bought telescopes and cameras, and that makes amateur astronomers a fantastic resource for scientific knowledge. That means basically, Chris, somebody listening out there could become the next guy like the uh, person in Japan, basically. They can indeed. And I would wholeheartedly encourage anyone who has a telescope and a camera to participate. You don't need a degree or even a PhD to be an explorer of the cosmos and to contribute to humanity's scientific knowledge. And contribute to an upcoming edition of Stargazer with our buddy Christopher Phillips. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. And you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about a pioneer of Hawaii's jazz scene, a singer whose career began in the late 50s and who was popular around the Pacific, from Hawaii to Hong Kong, Australia, and beyond. She was born here in 1934, got her start in Waikiki nightclubs, and in the 60s, she and pianist John to Johnny Todd, whom she met and married in Australia, settled in Hawaii for good and raised two children. Her frequent performing partner in those days was singer Jimmy Borges. Her recordings include the album Exotic Dreams, recorded in 1958, and the 1959 album Cool Heat, on which she sings classic American standards like Rogers and uh, Hart's uh, Johnny One Note and uh, Jimmy Van Heusen's Like Someone in Love. She did some acting, too, and once in a while, you can catch her on a rerun of the original Hawaii Five-O series. Like many of our local artists in Hawaii, her existence and excellence paved the way for the presence of Asian performers in music and film today. And her name? Ethel Azama. And our winner of our quiz is Eunice Kuramoto from Manoa. She shares that her dad played in big bands and actually performed with Ethel. But that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Lauren Hana Chai, The Five Senses, an exploration of loss, love, and healing. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Nearly 200 businesses across the state rely on HPR underwriting to reach engaged listeners like you. 
Mahalo to the Cades Foundation, the Hawaii International Film Festival, and Ferraro Choi. They believe, as you do, in the power of public radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering the Global MBA with 21-month, 24-month, and 36-month options. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. You hardly even notice when I try to show you. Song is meant to keep you doing what you're supposed to. Waking up too early, maybe we could sleep. Make you banana Musician Jack Johnson has announced a benefit concert to support Maui's relief for tonight at the Republic. He'll be joined by Paula Fuga and John Cruz, who will also feature on Songs for Maui, a new release of a 2012 live show on Maui by the three artists, also being marketed as a Maui relief effort. He spoke to HBR's Dave Lawrence about the tragedy. It's always better when we're together Yeah, we'll look at them stars when we're together Well, it's always better when we're together Yeah, it's always better when we're together HBR and I'm Dave Lawrence with uh, the music of Jack Johnson and Jack has announced uh, a couple ways he's trying to help out in this incredibly transformational time that we find ourselves in and he's got songs for Maui uh, live benefit record and that features Paula Fuga and, and John Cruz and uh, then he's also got this concert and that's going to be on Monday the 18th at the Republic and all proceeds to benefit fire relief efforts help provide ongoing support for Maui. Jack, welcome back, my brother. Hey, hey, what's up, Dave? Thank you for taking time to talk about your stuff with us. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. Walk me through, I guess, on your own, because it's, as we were saying, it can touch people in so many different ways, and I think depending on your proximity to what has happened for yourself, when did you first hear all this stuff was happening, and, and what were you thinking and feeling, and what are your own personal connections there to Lahaina that were threatened and or lost? Yeah, well, woke up that morning and just started seeing a lot of texts coming in. And we have some real close friends that live up Kula, and there were some fires up there at first. And so we were checking on them. And just a lot of memories from when I was a little kid of being in Lahaina. We used to go on like Hawaiian sailing canoes quite a bit when we were kids. I had an uncle that had one rigged up, and we would go on camping trips. And we'd usually launch from right there and Mala Wharf area, and right. we'd come in afterwards, and we'd take all our gear off right there at the Lahaina Harbor and just go get ice cream. And I just remember being in that area from when I was real young, uh, just every once in a while, you know, not all the time or anything, but every few summers I'd get to be in that zone. When we'd be on Maui, we'd at least go through. And so to kind of hear the news that morning, like for so many people, it was just surreal, and my heart was broken. So I just want to send all my love right now to all the people of Lahaina and to that community. It was uh, heartbreaking then, and it's still just so much work to be done. And uh, I just know that community is really hurting right now. And so just, yeah, I want to send love and let people know that we're here. And it's hard to know unless you're there what you need. And so we're listening, and we just want to give as much support as we can when time is right and figure out ways that we can be supportive from outside to hear their vision and what the next step should be and then come in and help out however we can. You've got the show. Let's talk about that first. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I think as soon as everybody started hearing the news, uh, when a little time settled in and a lot of musician friends started kind of contacting each other about, hey, what can we do? And there were some real fast ones that came together. A lot of different events started being talked about, but it was hard to kind of figure out the time everybody could do one. Some started making sure they weren't going to like step on each other's toes. And so mm. I think they'll have to continue being shows for a long time, you know, for Maui. Sure. This one was, we said, hey, let's at least just get one with uh, our friends at the Republic. They told us the dates they had. My band was going to be on island. So figured out what night John and Paula were both available. That's how the idea came together. As you pointed, the scope of this is, um, you say you're going to need a lot of benefit shows. Man, uh, it's going to need, it's going to rechange, reframe. All of us are talking about best ways to support. I think right now what we're going to be doing is just 
starting a fund that will be for ongoing efforts. We all have to think about ways for the immediate relief of of food and shelter, and people are going to be having to think about how to rebuild and then how to rebuild community, and there's so much important work to be done for so long. And so really at this point, we're in the listening phase. Like I was saying, we're in the research phase, making sure to hear people that have been there for generations and get guidance on best ways that we can support because we're just coming in from outside, and we just want to help how we can. So yeah, John and Paula and I, besides being musical friends and wanting to figure out ways to raise funds, I think there's a lot of uh, conversation beginning, even amongst us three, about best ways to support. And um, it'll keep evolving. Right off the bat, we've already been donating to a lot of the food groups, Chef Hui, who are good friends, and Maui Food Bank, Maui Hub, Common Ground Collective, Hawaii Community Foundations, Maui Strong Fund. I mean, those are all places that we've been contributing to before and now with this show. And like you said, you know, I mean, a show can raise funds for a moment. And that's really where the idea came. It popped in my head that, well, maybe we could do some kind of a song or something that could in perpetuity be raising funds for Lahaina. And then I thought about, oh, this show that Paula and John and I had done. I remember it being a really fun show. And we we had a good time playing at the Maui Arts and Cultural Center. And all 10 of the songs had a really good, uplifting feel. Yeah, and it can make any song a little bit spicier. You can, if you have the right person singing it, suddenly uh, Happy Birthday becomes a magical odyssey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I love about the idea of doing the album is that, you know, 20 years from now, hopefully it'll still be able to contribute to that community. Uh, yeah, I can't even. It's the scope of this all of the challenges and housing and so many unknowns it's uh it's a bit mind-boggling it's so much to think about and it's really um all we know is that we want to contribute in some way and send love we're just doing it the best way we know how which is to play music like you said it's overwhelming to think about all the work that needs to be done but we're gonna at least jump in so this record was recorded in 2012 if you do or don't remember or maybe you weren't here or whatever jack and paul and john did this short little acoustic tour sort of thing as I remember it happening around the islands and I remember the show at the Hawaii Theater and then this is like the corresponding gig over at the Mac. During that 2012 tour actually we made it like a real priority to get to visit with uh, different nonprofit groups and kind of show our kids how people are spending their life trying to make their communities better and trying to learn the history of places and when did you first play there i think the first time we played on maui was for the kokua festival for a few years we did one night over here and then we do one night over on maui and we do uh, the outdoor part of the mac and then lahaina itself gigs there later in your career like just thinking back i haven't played a show there but i just wow you know this just gives us time to kind of reflect. I've been trying to learn a lot about the place and reading a lot sure. about the history because you can't know about the future unless you know about the past. And so That's just it. trying to learn as much as I can about that area through reading and listening to folks that have a lot of the knowledge of the history of the place. And In the beginning of this, when the first signs of hope with that tree came out and we got this statement from all these nonprofits and people, arborists who had come together and just to read that that thing was planted as a sapling in 1873. And so you think about all the people's memories, and they have a great little quote on a plaque that's there that survived the fire that says it was uh, meticulously cared for by the people of the community who shaped it and would celebrate birthdays and luau's and different things under its shade. Yeah, just shows you that, yeah, roots roots can remain. And, you know, there's a direct connection and inherent connection between people and Aina. So the health of the Aina will bring health to the people. And when people are healthy, the Aina will be healthy. And so, I don't know, it's, it's, you know, it's such a, it's, it's so hard. I'm not there. I'm just, again, trying to listen as much as we can. And and it's uh, such a long road. It is going to be a very, very long road. But you do have to find little seeds of hope that will grow again. So anyway, I I mean, I think that's what we're trying to do with this project is just plant one little seed of hope, uh, just one more small contribution to a really big project that's going to take a long time. But it is a seed. And just like the tree, the tree is a powerful example and it's a powerful symbol. And uh, you do that when you give people a chance to support this thing. And uh, you'll put bugs in other people's ears, too. That's the other thing is the philanthropy aspect of it putting it out there in that way and reminding people of their own memories, perhaps, when we talk about things like the tree or you as a child camping or whatever, and people have their own experiences and ways they maybe want to help give back and listen to what 
people's needs are uh, in this difficult time. Well, uh, I, I don't know by the time I put this on, if you, any of those tickets, that's going to get snapped up and out of the, they're probably sold out by now, huh? Did you already get a text? Tickets are gone. I haven't looked. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping that, it, you know, that we'll be able to, to, to sell it out and raise good, good oh, come funds on. for the... Come on. It's going to be <laughs> the first of many, my brother. I was surprised you weren't doing the arena, and I'm sure you'll eventually get over there and put some cats together on a thing. I mean, there's so many of you in the islands, and I already have heard from other people about things on the Maui cats and Shep and everybody and what's they're talking about. So, I mean, I'm sure you'll be doing many, many, many things. I know where your heart is. appreciate supporting this and, uh, and getting the word out on, on what we're trying to do. And I hope you're uh, able to draw a lot of attention to it and inspire other people to dig deep. And again, it's songs for Maui. Folks can look for it. Paula and John on that and a lot of the songs uh, that you'll hear at that show. Don't be a stranger, Jack. Love to have you on uh, more than every several years and sending you a, a big high five and um, hope that uh, that you know I'm grateful for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Hopefully, yeah, next time we talk, it'll be um, with, you know, happier news in the future of what's happening over there and the support will continue. You're doing good stuff. Thanks Appreciate for the inspiration. It. You're welcome. Be safe, bro. Right on. Aloha. Aloha. Well, that was musician Jack Johnson and HPR's Dave Lawrence talking about tonight's Maui Relief Concert, Songs for Maui. Fellow artists Paula Fuga and John Cruz will join Johnson on stage at 6.30 p.m. at The Republic. We'll have links on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org later today. And so it goes And it always goes on and on and on and on and on On and on and on and on and on Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we hear from the hotel workers' unions about how they're helping their members deal with the aftermath of Lahaina fires. Do you have a Lahaina memory to share? Call our talkback line at 808-792-8217. You can find the conversation uh, segments on our website or on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.